0: Amado Carrillo Fuentes left his village in Sinaloa at the tender age of 13, telling his family that he would return when he was rich. And that was a promise he would keep, becoming the Mexican drug lord known as El Señor de los Silos, or the Lord of the Skies, and who would ultimately seize control of the Juarez cartel. So how in the world does a kid from a poor village in Sinaloa become the El Jefe de Jefes, or the boss of bosses among the Mexican drug cartels? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the life and times of Amado Carrillo Fuentes, Don Carrillo. We will track him from his childhood in a poor village in Sinaloa to his introduction into the first large-scale drug trafficking organization in Mexico's history. We're going to look at his interest in aeronautics and follow him as he moves up in the cartel world under the tutelage of his uncle Doneto. We will talk about his big promotion from a pilot smuggling dope to being in charge of and facilitating the delivery of most of the cocaine coming into Mexico out of South America. We will also discuss how he narrowly escaped assassination attempts, seized control of the Juarez cartel for himself, and then reached the pinnacle of drug traffickers, where for a brief period of time he was considered the el jefe de jefe, or the boss of all cartel bosses. We'll also take a look at his fall from power as law enforcement started closing in on him his attempts to use plastic surgery to change his appearance, and the very mysterious circumstances which surround his death. All and more in today's episode. Hey, if you enjoy the episode, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, put it in the comment sections below. And let me know what you think about our new digs. This is where we're going to be filming in 2022. Let me know if you like the set, if you hate the set. Let me know what you think about that. And if you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button now. And remember that all of our episodes are available on the major podcast outlets. And remember that we've got merch. If you want to support the channel, pick you up a hat or a coffee mug or a t-shirt. The link is in the description below to where you go to purchase merch if you are interested. Now, on to Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Now, he was born in 1956 to Walter Vicente Carrillo Vega and Aurora Fuentes in a tiny village outside of Navalato, Sinaloa, Mexico. He was born into a very large but poor family and had 11 siblings. Amato left home in 1970 at the age of 13, saying he would return when he was rich. And as I noted, that's exactly what he did, ultimately giving back to his community by building a large church, a larger-than-life statue of Jesus, and a big farmhouse for his family. But let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the mid-60s. While Amado was just hitting double digits and living an ordinary life in his village, the first generation of modern drug traffickers were getting started nearby in Sinaloa under the guidance of Pedro Aviles Perez, or Don Pedro, also known as the Lion of the Sierras. Don Pedro's inner circle involved several second-generation traffickers-to-be, such as Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo, Rafael Caracantaro, who went by Rafa, and Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Don Neto. And if the Carrillo rings a bell, it should because Don Neto is Amado's uncle. And as one of the early leaders in the Mexican drug trade, Don Neto would ultimately be Carrillo's gateway into Narcoland. Pedro Aviles was actually the first known drug lord to use an aircraft to smuggle drugs into the United States. And this fascinated Amado and really sparked his interest in first learning to fly and then to taking the transportation of drugs by air to a whole new level. Now, drug trafficking has drastically changed over the past 60 years. In the beginning, violence was unnecessary and formal organizations were scarce. In fact, only two major drug trafficking organizations even existed in the early 70s, although the Juarez cartel was getting up and running in Chihuahua just across the border from Texas. Now, compare that to today where law enforcement identifies the existence of nine separate drug cartels and 36 additional cell groups or gangs that are involved in some way in the Mexican drug trade. But in the early 70s, there were really only two organizations or clicas or cliques or plazas involved in the drug trade, and that was the Gulf and Don Pedro's organization. Now, the Gulf Cartel, as it is now called, had been around a lot longer, getting started in the 1930s, smuggling alcohol into the U.S. during Prohibition. They operated out of Matamoros-Tamalipas, which is right across the border from Brownsville, Texas. They were involved in lots of different types of organized crime, gambling, prostitution, car theft, and they peddled a little heroin, But in the 70s, moving drugs was not the number one area for them. Juxtaposed was Pedro Aviles with his center of operations among the Sierra Madre mountain range in the Triangulo Dorado or the Golden Triangle region of Chihuahua, Sinaloa, and Durango. It was from this remote location that he was able to establish a drug trafficking organization that sowed, cultivated, and distributed mass amounts of contraband. Pedro and company primarily trafficked marijuana and heroin, but they were also one of the first to start trafficking cocaine into the United States from South America. And this was before Pablo Escobar emerged on the scene. And the name of the game was to get the drugs into the U.S. Pedro's main contact in the United States was Max Kosman, El Rey del Opio, or the King of Opium, who was a member of the Bugsy Siegel gang. And for those not familiar, Bugsy Siegel was a famous American gangster in the 30s and the 40s, with ties to both the Italian and Jewish mafias, and who is largely credited for launching gambling in Las Vegas With the opening of his Flamingo Hotel and Casino in 1947. As the organization grew, Don Pedro acquired several men under his command, and it is a veritable who's who of future drug lords, including Amado Carrillo, who would turn 20 in the mid-70s and who was becoming heavily involved in the organization. As I mentioned, Don Pedro's inner circle included Felix Gallardo, who would later be the leader of the Guadalajara cartel, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Don Neto, who is Amado's uncle, and the right-hand man of Felix Gallardo. He and Gallardo would later be among the first to start working with Pablo Escobar in Colombia, and Rafael Quintero, Rafa, who would be the third founder of the Guadalajara cartel of the future. Then there was the second rung of guys, which included Pablo Acosta Villarreal, El Zorro de Ojinaga, or the Ojinaga Fox, who worked closely with Amado Carrillo. Then all the way down the totem pole and just getting started in cartel world were the youngsters. Our boy, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, who would later revolutionize smuggling cocaine through the air with his fleet of airplanes and who would seize control of the Juarez cartel for himself. Ismael... El Mayo Zambala, who would become one of the founders of both the Juarez and the Sinaloa cartels after the Guadalajara broke up. Another fellow you may have heard of, Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo of Sinaloa cartel fame. And then finally, both the Ariano Felix brothers and the Beltran Leyva brothers were all getting their start in narco world at this time. And things went well during the mid-70s. Amado started doing menial tasks, and acting as a driver, but eventually learned to fly, becoming a pilot in Don Pedro's group. As time marched on, several other traffickers or drug plazas began to spring up throughout Mexico, and then things started going sideways for this bunch in 1978. Info from both the United States and Mexican authorities would later reveal that a power struggle had emerged between Don Pedro and Felix Gallardo that would ultimately lead to each man plotting a way to seize control for himself. And we know that just prior to Don Pedro's death, there was a meeting of leaders of the various plazas that had emerged in Mexico. Gallardo wanted to establish one large group of major drug traffickers, Don Pedro didn't really see the need and took particular offense when one of his plaza rivals credited Gallardo for bringing all of the parties together. Regardless, shortly after this meeting, Don Pedro is killed and to this day much mystery surrounds his death as there are several different versions of how that went down. For a full rundown of Don Pedro's organization and the fascinating details of his death, check out the full-length video on the history of Pedro Aviles Perez on this channel. With the death of Don Pedro, Felix Gallardo, Don Neto, and Rafa would then take over the organization's leadership. And pursuant to the earlier meeting, they coordinated all of the various plazas, their production and operations, and formed the core of what became known as the Guadalajara Cartel. And then these guys took slinging dope to the next level. They started with producing high-quality seedless marijuana in mass quantities from large multi-acre fields. They were also the first Mexican cartel to start working with Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel in assisting with trafficking boatloads of cocaine across the United States border. This was primarily facilitated through Honduran smuggler Juan Ramon Balesteros and then by Amado Carrillo. So drug trafficking in the early 80s was dominated by the Guadalajara cartel who saw future legendary traffickers like Amado, El Chapo, and El Mayo moving up in the organization. It was also during this time period that a third drug cartel rose to prominence in Chihuahua, just across the border from El Paso. The Juarez cartel had now grown into a big boy in the narco world. And it had a major advantage as it was right on the United States border. And this was a perfect staging area to bounce cocaine into the United States. So it's the early 80s and life was good with the Guadalajara cartel. Really good because much of what they were doing was being protected by local law enforcement, politicians, and the United States CIA who was using the Mexican drug trade to secretly fund Ronald Reagan's war against communism in Nicaragua. And after the Iran-Contra scandal blew up, it became the only way that Contras were receiving financial support. However, not everybody in law enforcement was on board. The United States DEA and the Mexican military were still seeking to bust drug traffickers. So, in 1984, acting on information from U.S. DEA agent Kiki Camarena, 450 Mexican soldiers backed by helicopters destroyed a 2,500-acre marijuana plantation known as Rancho Buffalo that had an estimated annual production of billions of dollars. This was an unbelievable blow to the Guadalajara cartel and to the United States' ability through the CIA to fund ongoing operations of the Contras in Nicaragua. And this was the second field that was busted by Kiki, so he had become quite the problem. The DEA says by January of 1985, quote, Kiki was extremely close to unlocking a multi-billion dollar drug pipeline involving the CIA, Mexican government officials, politicians, local police, and the Guadalajara cartel. And it was because he was about to expose the entire operation that he was abducted in broad daylight on February 7th of 1985. Kiki was surrounded by five armed men, a mixture of Mexican Secret Service and Guadalajara men, who threw him into a car. Camarena was then taken to a mansion being used by Rafa. There, Kiki was beaten, tortured, and interrogated over a 30-hour period. Ultimately, Camarena's body was found almost a month later, wrapped in plastic and ditched next to a ranch in Machoacan. It is a fascinating story with complicity of the United States CIA, but the specifics are beyond the scope of this video. However, if you are interested, the entire story of Kiki Camarena is also available on this channel. Camarena's torture and murder prompted a swift reaction from the USDEA, which launched Operation Leyenda or Legend the largest DEA homicide investigation ever undertaken. Under pressure from the U.S. government, Mexican officials quickly apprehended Don Neto and Rafa, but Felix Gallardo was able to evade arrest until 1989. In the midst of all of this kiki chaos, Amado Carrillo had been working as a pilot for the Guadalajara cartel when he was promoted by his uncle Don Neto and sent from Sinaloa to Chihuahua to oversee the cocaine shipments coming in from South America, and to manage its distribution among the local plaza bosses. It was from here that he would build a fortune with Juan Ballesteros and his fleet of planes. So, there are two major U.S. border crossings in Chihuahua, at Juarez and at Ojinaga. Amado would learn about border operations from the founders and leaders of the Juarez cartels in each city. Pablo Acosta Villarreal, El Zorro de Ojinaga, the Ojinaga Fox, was obviously stationed in Ojinaga, and Rafael Aguilar Gajardo was in Juarez. Now, Aguilar was also a federal police commander in the DFS, which was the Mexican equivalent to the United States CIA before it was disbanded which was, you know, super handy for a drug cartel. And it's another example of how the Mexican drug trade works best when you can protect it with money and government corruption rather than bullets. And it was from Chihuahua that Carrillo started working with Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel and then later the Cali cartel to smuggle lots and lots of cocaine from Colombia to Mexico and ultimately into the United States. Amado worked primarily under Pablo Acosta Villarreal, serving as the second in command. That was until 1987 when Acosta was killed during a cross-border raid by Mexican federal police in the Rio Grande village of Santa Elena. His death left Rafael Aguilar Guajardo with the sole control of the Juarez cartel. As I mentioned during this time, Amado was essentially in charge of getting Pablo Escobar's cocaine from Colombia to Mexico. And the only real way to cover that much ground consistently is through the air. So Amado took the money he made and invested in a few airlines and some planes of his own. He used those jets to transport cocaine from Colombia to Mexico and then into the United States and Canada. Now, the concept wasn't new, as pilots like Barry Seal and George Jung had used small planes to fly cocaine into the United States under the radar. Problem was, Amato needed to move a lot more cocaine, so you just use bigger planes, right? Well, yes, and the planes that Carrillo purchased were full-sized passenger jets that could hold huge amounts of cocaine. The problem is planes that size can't fly under the radar. So he flew over them. Most commercial traffic flies at between 30,000 and 39,000 feet. So Amado just took it up another 10,000 feet to a cruising altitude of nearly 50,000 feet. Now, there's a reason that commercial planes don't fly that high. It's because the air up there is too thin to breathe. You can't breathe. So, the pilots wore pressurized suits, just like in the military. And it was this arrangement that would earn him the title of El Señor de los Silos, or the Lord of the Skies. In his peak, Carrillo was moving so much coke, he was rumored to be laundering tens of millions of dollars a year, primarily through his airlines, but also through other businesses that he owned in Mexico, Colombia, Cuba, and Chile. So as things were going south for the Guadalajara cartel after the murder of Kiki Camarena, The power vacuum that was created actually allowed Carrillo to move up in Narco world. And recognizing that the end of the Guadalajara cartel was imminent, several leading members met and ultimately agreed to divide up the territories previously run by the syndicate. And this is a bit of an oversimplification, but essentially the division was as follows. The ariano felix brothers formed the Tijuana cartel, which was to control northwest Mexico in Tijuana and Baja, California. Amado Carrillo-Fuentes and family who were already in Juarez would stay with the Juarez cartel, which controlled the Chihuahua region in northeast Mexico. And El Chapo, El Mayo, the Beltran Leyva brothers, Hector Palma, and several former lieutenants would form what would later be known as the Sinaloa Cartel. So it's 1989, and now we have four major players in the game. Tijuana Cartel, the Sinaloa Cartel, the Juarez Cartel, and don't forget about the Gulf Cartel. It was still in existence. But let's focus on the Cartel de Juarez For the moment. Now, Rafael Aguilar Guajardo was still the leader, but Amado Carrillo was becoming wicked popular for moving huge amounts of cocaine, and with that popularity, drew the attention of law enforcement. First, Amado gets arrested not long after Felix Gallardo and was allegedly forced to work with the Mexican government liaisons to avoid a life sentence. The details of this entanglement are very sketchy at best. But we know that next, Aguilar would go on the run, narrowly escaping a police raid of his $3 million home in Juarez in June of 1992. And it didn't take long for the relationships to sour between the new three offshoots of the Guadalajara cartel, the Tijuana, the Sinaloa, and the Juarez. Now, the long version of these disputes is beyond the scope of this video, but they are explained in detail in my videos on El Chapo and on El Mayo. But, in short, one of the Ariano Felix brothers shoots El Chapo's right-hand man in the forehead, which sets off a chain reaction where each cartel then took turns trying to assassinate the other cartel's leaders. And then some of the disputes would rage internally— Reports vary, but it is alleged that law enforcement had closed in on Rafael Aguilar Guajardo and that as part of a deal, he was planning to reveal the identity of some of the corrupt politicians and law enforcement that were allowing the Juarez cartel to thrive. And Carrillo, he was not going to let that happen. So in April of 1993, the story in the newspaper read like this. Rafael Aguilar Guajardo, a former federal police officer and one of Mexico's most wanted drug traffickers, was shot to death while vacationing with his family in the Caribbean resort of Cancun. Aguilar, a 43-year-old multimillionaire, was the head of the Juarez Cartel, one of the country's most powerful drug trafficking organizations. Although the area had become an important landing area for South American cocaine shipments headed for the United States, Authorities believe Aguilar was vacationing rather than doing business in Cancun. The flamboyant figure reportedly spent Easter weekend with 15 members of his family at a five-star hotel in the popular resort. Aguilar was gunned down outside of Gypsy's Restaurant on the city's tourist strip as he returned from a submarine tour with family members. Aguilar's wife and son were also wounded in the attack. Police were able to arrest three suspects who fled by car on a highway leading out of Cancun. They confiscated the AR-15 submachine gun that had fired 19 rounds that killed Aguilar, plus several other guns and grenades. One of these men confessed that they were hired to assassinate Aguilar by agents of Amado Carrillo Fuentes. End news article. From there, Amado took over the helm of the Juarez cartel. Now, organized crime in Mexico has always been a family affair, and after Amado got his start in the drug business under the direction of his uncle, it was now his time to bring in his brothers and eventually his son into the business. After installing his family into leadership of the Juarez cartel, Carrillo's next move was to partner with Cali cartel boss Helmer Herrera to smuggle even more cocaine into Mexico by air. By 1995, Carrillo was being called el jefe de jefe, or the boss of bosses, but not everybody was on board, especially the other bosses. Under his leadership, the Juarez cartel had taken a big bite out of the Gulf cartel's action and coke trade across the Texas border and the Tijuana cartel's action out west, so revenge was to be expected. And on November 17, 1995, Carrillo and family were just finishing up a dinner at about 10 p.m. at Bali Bali, a fancy seafood restaurant in Mexico City when 12 men with machine guns entered the restaurant. This group was a Tijuana cartel hit squad led by Ramon Ariano Felix in what was a joint effort with Juan Garcia Abrego, who was the head of the Gulf cartel. One of the gunmen identified Carrillo's bodyguards at a table and they unloaded, killing four people in the attack. They hastily left the restaurant, satisfied that they had just assassinated Don Carrillo and his men. While they did kill three of the bodyguards, Amado was seated elsewhere and was able to ride out the attack underneath a table and then was whisked away in a getaway vehicle. Not long after the incident, Juan Garcia Abrego of the Gulf Cartel was arrested, which further opened the door for Amado, who was then able to knit together a network of cartels, including the Sinaloa and the Pacific Cartel, who now exchanged information and equipment on smuggling routes instead of gunfire. Law enforcement would refer to this group as the Mexican Narcos Federation. The new network was so efficient that law enforcement stated that 25 tons of cocaine worth $500 million dollars could be transported on Don Carrillo's planes, which now included two French-built Caravelle passenger jets and a modified Boeing 747 in 48 hours. In his peak, Amado's wealth was estimated at $25 billion, rivaling that of Pablo Escobar, which begs the question, what was he doing with all of that money? Well, all kinds of crazy things. Carrillo had a 37,000-square-foot mansion in an upscale neighborhood in Mexico City. Now, it was normal on the outside. Inside, it had safari zebra-print walls, was full of red velvet decor, and had giant disco balls hanging over the bar. Carrillo was definitely flashy, having custom gold-plated weapons made with his initials encrusted in diamonds on the handle. He was also building a $5 million mansion called the Palace of 1001 Nights in Hermosillo, Sonora. It looked like something out of the movie Aladdin. Construction on the 27,000-square-foot mansion started in 1992, but was never completed, being seized by the government in '93. The house then sat abandoned for several years, being used by vagrants and party seekers and being gradually covered in graffiti. In 2006, the governor asked that the federal government tear down Carrillo's mansion, to which it agreed, although actual demolition did not begin in earnest until 2020. So what else was he doing with his money? Well, at his peak, Carrillo was spending millions of dollars in bribes and at one point even threatened the president of Mexico, telling him that if the cops didn't back off, he'd pull all of his money out of the Mexican economy, causing it to collapse. And although it's not clear if that could actually happen, El Presidente wasn't taking any chances and dialed back the pressure on Amado, at least for a brief spell. But when the pressure returned, it was tenfold. First, Amado lost his influence with Mexico's security forces starting late in 1996, and then he became the main target of law enforcement. Now, up until this point, Carrillo was basically able to do whatever he wanted and was operating relatively free of any government or law enforcement intervention now in the state of Morelos, just south of Mexico City, which became his home base. It was there that Carrillo owned a house where he regularly held narco fiestas, and this house was just three blocks away from the governor's official residence. It had always been obvious that Carrillo was operating above the law, but now, with the revelation that the governor Jorge Carrillo Olea, was not only allowing the operation, but also apparently complicit in it, the citizens began silent marches and protests. Ultimately, the governor was forced to resign and then was arrested as pressure to capture Carrillo intensified among both the United States and Mexican authorities. In January of 1997, Carrillo barely escaped a raid by army troops at a wedding party of his sister in Sinaloa. The next month in February, Mexico's top anti-drug official, General Jesus Gutierrez Riboyo, was revealed to have been on Carrillo's payroll and was arrested. And anti-narcotic sources said that Gutierrez was singing like a bird about Carrillo's operations. Seeing the writing on the wall, Carrillo visited Cuba and Chile where he made investments aimed at establishing residents. He is thought to have secretly smuggled billions into Cuba in the months leading up to his supposed death. It was also during this time that he was making plans to undergo plastic surgery and radical liposuction to change his identity. Amado was obviously recognizable by almost everyone in Mexico, so he decided to do what has become quite trendy and organized crime, and that was to undergo facial plastic surgery and abdominal liposuction to change his appearance. So, a team of doctors, including Jaime Godoy, Ricardo Reyes, Carlos Avila, and Ramon Lopez Salcido, was assembled for the makeover, and it was well known that Carrillo had undergone minor plastic surgery in the past to change his appearance to avoid detection by authorities. Through these surgeries, he had earned the nickname the capo without a face because police didn't know exactly what Mexico's most powerful drug boss looked like. But this was to be a major reconstruction, to render his body and face totally unrecognizable. So on July 4th of 1997, at the posh Santa Monica Maternity Hospital in Mexico City, Carrillo went under the knife. After eight hours of surgery, being given anesthetics and a concoction of drugs that experts would later say contradicted all medical science, Carrillo was alleged to have died due to heart failure. The mechanism of his alleged death is disputed between the anesthetic drug cocktail and complications stemming from a malfunctioning respirator. Carrillo's open casket funeral was televised. It was lush and lavish, but his face was beyond recognition. The tip of his nose looked like it had been snipped off. His eyelids were purple with bruises and scars due to the surgical incisions. His chin had been reshaped with a surgical implant, sliced open during the autopsy, and hastily stitched back together with thick white thread. Carrillo's body looked withered, partly because several liters of fat had been sucked out of him. And despite this horrid appearance, the funeral was open casket, and conspiracy theorists to this day insist that a substitute was killed and his corpse surgically altered to make it look more like Amato. His cousin Sergio Carrillo would spread that exact rumor after the funeral saying quote, "Amato is fine, he is alive." And the dispute rages on even today as to whether Amado Carrillo Fuentes was in that coffin. Evidence that he is actually dead came from his mother, Aurora Fuentes, who identified the corpse as that of her eldest child. Of course, if he had planned a disappearance, this would fit right in. The surgeons who had operated on Carrillo were charged with murder as prosecutors concluded that they, with the intention of killing Carrillo, had intentionally administered a fatal anesthetic concoction. Regardless, in November of 1997, law enforcement would identify two mutilated bodies found in sealed drums along a roadside in Guerrero as that of Dr. Godoy and Dr. Reyes, the corpses partly encased in cement were blindfolded and handcuffed and had been burned, battered, and strangled. Law enforcement, of course, believes that this was punishment for the doctors allowing Carrillo to die. The Mexican government also announced that DNA tests had definitively identified the corpse as Carrillo's. The head of the United States DEA, Thomas Constantine, confirmed that the fingerprints of Carrillo's corpse matched those on a border crossing guard from his early days as a drug mule. He would say that the rumor that he is alive has as much credibility as the millions of sightings of the late Elvis Presley. Ultimately, very little paperwork exists about his death. The political magazine Animal would request documents on the autopsy of Amado Carrillo. They also requested the results of this DNA test that was allegedly taken to identify him and the identity of the forensic experts who performed the autopsy. The attorney general would ultimately respond that there were no records kept regarding the DNA obtained or the autopsy performed. Not likely. Carrillo was also reportedly spotted by members of the Mexican press visiting his daughter years after his apparent death. So there are multiple theories speculating as to what happened to Carrillo under the assumption that maybe he did not die in that surgery. The most prevalent theory is that he is living the life of luxury with his girlfriend in Cuba. One report claims that he is living in Chile and has been working with the FBI to bring down Mexican cartels. Regardless, we do know that after Carrillo's funeral, he was no longer directly involved in the leadership of the Juarez cartel, and after a brief turf war erupted over control of the cartel, Amado's brother, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, became the leader. Vicente then installed his brother, Rodolfo, and his nephew, also named Vicente, into cartel leadership. He formed a partnership with Juan Jose Espargoza Moreno and mended fences with other drug lords such as El Mayo, the Beltran Leyva Brothers, and El Chapo. That alliance of drug lords from contiguous Mexican states became known as the Golden Triangle Alliance because of its three-state area of influence, Chihuahua, which borders the state of Texas, Durango, and Sinaloa. The alliance was important because it gave everyone easy access to the U.S. border, and for a moment, the group became arguably the most powerful drug federation in the world. But it was short-lived as the relationship between the groups grew unstable in the early 2000s as El Chapo The Sinaloa cartel drug lord refused to pay the Juarez cartel for the right to use some of the smuggling routes into the U.S. So bad blood re-emerged, and in 2001, after El Chapo escaped from prison, several Juarez cartel members actually defected to the Sinaloa cartel. In 2004, Vicente's brother was killed, allegedly by the order of El Chapo. So Vicente retaliated by assassinating El Chapo's brother in prison. This ignited an all-out war between the cartels, wherein they have remained locked in vicious battle for control of the border town of Juarez. The fighting between them has left thousands dead in Chihuahua over the years. And since that time, the Sinaloa cartel has actually taken over a significant amount of the Juarez cartel's former territory and now controls one of the primary transportation routes for billions of dollars, worth of illegal drug shipments entering the United States from Mexico. In 2009, the Office of the Mexican Attorney General seized warehouses that they believed belonged to the Juarez cartel and used to store weapons and cocaine. They also seized over 60 other properties belonging to Carrillo and or the cartel and froze bank accounts amounting to over $10 billion originally belonging to Carrillo. In April of 2009, Mexican authorities would arrest Carrillo's son, Vicente Carrillo Leva. And in September of 2011, the Mexican federal police would report that the cartel was now known as the Nuevo Cartel de Juárez or the New Juárez Cartel. Its leader, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, having retired following a reported illness with brother Alberto, a.k.a. Ugly Betty, taking over at least until his arrest in September of 2013. Vicente himself would be arrested in October of 2014. And today, the Juarez's current known leader is Juan Pablo Ledesma. In 2020, the Mexican government auctioned off several properties owned by Amado Carrillo Fuentes. The auction included 77 cars, 5 airplanes, 5 homes, 107 lots of jewelry, and brought in over $5.3 million U.S., His Mexico City home sold for more than $2 million alone. In its prime, the Juarez cartel was a dominant player controlling a large percentage of the cocaine traffic from Mexico into the United States. The loss of Amado Carrillo Fuentes in 1997 was the beginning of an ultimate decline of the Juarez cartel as Carrillo relied on ties to Mexico's top-ranking law enforcement and politicians to provide protection for his operations. And the group really has never been able to reestablish these relationships. Despite claims that the Juarez cartel has faded, law enforcement still identifies it as operational in 21 different Mexican states. And the cartel continues to engage in very public displays of violence against their present rival, the Sinaloa cartel. If you would like to know more about the life and times of Amado Carrillo Fuentes, he is a major character in the Narcos Mexico series on Netflix. And a fictionalized version of the Juarez Cartel also plays a central role in the television series Breaking Bad and its prequel, Better Call Saul. So that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you got a comment, you got something to say, Put it in the comment section below. And remember, I want to hear comments about our set. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Let me know. If you haven't subscribed, do it now. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification bell so that you know every time we upload. And remember, I love it when you guys share me on social media. That is all for today. Again, my name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.